0: Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are... Gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 Asha CEUs. So <sighs> thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 Asha CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join. Us. I'm Erin Forward, MSP CCC SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by speechtherapypd.com. Well, hello everybody and welcome back. I'm going to be incredibly brutally honest. Today, our guest and I were having a blue day, and that's okay cuz not every day can be a mountaintop. Some days are a valley and I mean, hell's bells. Sometimes it feels like it's a season of a valley, but we have to acknowledge that and respect that that's the season. So it kind of perfectly aligns with the topic that we're talking about because in truth, we have a lot of work to do in healthcare. And so that's what we're doing. Y'all, I am absolutely elated that our guest today is Renee Garrett. M-S-E-D-C-C-C-S-L-P. Y'all may know Renee from episode 155, The Ethics of Evolving Your Scope of Practice. Also, Renee is just like a powerhouse in her own right. Like she is past president of the Speech Hearing Association of Virginia. She has her certified brain injury specialist certification, which is a beast of an undertaking. She's fees, certified, trained, privileged, and first and foremost, very, very dear friend. She's the one that I FaceTime at the end of a long week. And we may or may not sip adult beverages together while we're cooking dinner and laughing and or crying and then switch over to chocolate. But this is my person. And she's here today to not only acknowledge that, hey, this is hard. What we do is hard. And we can feel like we are crumbling and shattering at the end of the day. But We also have the strength to step up, to wake up and to be the force of change. And it requires a force. And let me put this words of wisdom out there. Sometimes when you're the force of change, your presence can't change it. It is in your absence that you leave a vacuum of longing, wanting muchness for the skills, for the strength, for the grace that you brought. And that's okay too. So if you're in a spot where you need change, but your presence ain't cutting it, it's okay for change to happen in your absence. So uh, I think that about sums up that mighty powerful intro. Renee, how are you
1: doing, love? (laughs) Good morning. I'm freezing. It's so cold.
0: Wait, what temperature is it up there?
1: I think it's 27. Oh, no. (laughs) supposed yeah. to get snow later again so got bread and milk of course already here the essentials
0: <laughs> uh-huh we've got our priorities well they're calling for a potential of colder weather this weekend but the boys are like but we can still play outside i was like nobody is playing outside until my garage and basement are clean and then there was like this sudden silence and all three, the boys and my husband looked at each other like, how do we get out of this? I was like, I saw the look, suck it up, buttercup, everybody's cleaning. <laughs> like, oh my God, I look like a pack rat. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh, oh, well. Okay. So woman, we're talking about a hard topic today, disparities in health and healthcare. And you're kind of known for talking on this incredibly uncomfortable topic. So I just kind of want to know, how did that become your wheelhouse? Because that's not a friendly wheelhouse.
1: Well, I work in a fairly rural spot. It's pretty up and coming, I guess. They have built a lot more stuff, but there's a lot of farmland out near our hospital and a lot of people who are of lower socioeconomic status as well. And so one of the things, too, that there's a certain area that our hospital serves that's kind of known, you know, just be honest, known for its drug activity. And so there's a lot of people who show up in the emergency room that are withdrawing or uh, maybe have OD'd or both or, you know, that kind of thing. So it just became at first for me, it was about health literacy. And then also there was a lot of food insecurity In that area. And so those were the kind of two things that I was noticing as a younger clinician, well, I won't say younger, less seasoned clinician a few years ago. And I just felt like, especially with literacy, it was so important. You know, we're speech language pathologists. I don't know. I just think people assume it's 2022, almost said 2021, (laughs) and that everyone can read. And that's just not the case. And that was kind of very eye opening. I just, you know, it's one of those things when it's not in your face. I don't know that you realize the depth of the things that really affect other people's lives. And I'm not talking about, you know, just their health conditions like diabetes and things like that. I'm talking about, you know, their life expectancy, their mental health, their access to food, their access to care um, as far as health care goes. And then also insurance. Insurance is a big, always a big topic. But there's a lot of people who are either uninsured or underinsured too. And again, I don't think you, the average general person, just, I don't think we realize how impactful and how widespread those topics truly, truly are. And when I started kind of delving into this as far as health disparities go, I keep hearing health disparities and then health care disparities. And so I was trying to figure out what does that exactly mean? Because the health disparities are those things we just, kind of briefly touched on, the mortality, life expectancy. I think I skipped one, the burden of disease, you know, when you don't have access to insurance and access to health care, and then food insecurity. There's a lot of other things that are online that you can look at that kind of define that even more. A lot of... Is that like a food desert? Yeah, and there's a lot of governmental agencies like Health and Human Services has some policy and data information on their website. NIH has a whole thing about communities in action and the state of health disparities.
0: We've got down the street from us, like literally down the street from us, it's one zip code over on North Beltline. And so it's like maybe a 10, 15 minute drive from us. It's a food desert. And that zip code has one of the, like across the nation, it's like falls in like the top five for above knee amputations. Oh, Wow. And it's like, that's the craziest thing about Columbia. Like we live in a nice neighborhood. I mean, it's middle class all the way and God help us on USC Gamecock day. It's infiltrated with intoxicated um, college kids, which is a story for another day. And trust me, the people watching is spectacular before, after a football game. Also, the boys have reached that awkward age where they like watching the sorority girls coming to and fro and this is just not happening, but Literally 15 minutes from our house, it is a completely different world.
1: Yeah, and I'm about 20 minutes from our hospital. And you know, talking about the food desert, one of the things that happened during COVID you know, how the schools have those federal cards that you fill out every year, and you're like, oh my gosh, rolling your eyes, why do I have to do this? And it's like, you live on a military base or you don't. And I think there's, I don't remember the questions because obviously my kids are grown now and I haven't had to fill one out. But the reason behind that federal card was for federal funding, which I think most of us know that. But one of the things that happened during COVID here was when they shut the schools down, a lot of the schools in this area have free or reduced lunch for kids, and a lot of them have free breakfast. So they were forced to, they had the some of the food items already because the school shutdown happened pretty abruptly. And so what they did was prepare the food and say, if you are a student at this school, come get the food. We don't care if it's, we don't care if you already have, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to be in the free or reduced program. We have to use this food. And what people didn't understand was they were saying, oh, I don't feel right about doing that. But guess what happens if they don't use what they have? And again, unprecedented times, they lose it. And that's kind of the reason behind that federal card and some of these other programs is if you're not using it and you look at health literacy, if you're the caregiver, the parent of this child who needs it, but you don't understand how to fill these forms out and you don't have someone who can do that for you. Again, I don't think we, that's not something that's forefront in my mind in 2022 that that would be the case, but yet here we are because it is the case. And so that's a really, to me, it sounds like a really basic, simple thing to enroll in if, if it's something that you need, but then you look at the federal funding and how that's been cut because of some lack of knowledge about how to apply for the programs and things like that. So when you're looking at healthcare care disparities, that's, I think it was Institute of Medicine said, it's the differences in the quality of care that are not access related. It's not clinical needs, preferences, or the appropriateness of the intervention. So it's just the difference in the quality that of the healthcare that you get. And I think that's More widespread than what we think it is because it sounds like just healthcare, like going to the pediatrician or going to the specialist if you have heart disease or something like that. And that's not, it's so much further reaching and more widespread than I think the average person is aware of. So I'm just going to say this. Most clinicians,
0: most SLPs are middle to upper middle class white females. Most of us come from a nuclear or somewhat close resemblance to a nuclear family. So we've never walked that walk, which is why our implicit biases and why our we can't wrap our brain around it. Honestly, I think every graduate school should require a student clinician to do a home health semester. I think the world would be a different place if you spent 10 to 12 weeks doing home health care. PEDS to adults. I think everybody would have a whole nother level of empathy.
1: Well, and pre-COVID, um, as you all know, I'm involved in the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia. And um, one of our former presidents, Darlene Robke, was very key and instrumental in having us go, or having the graduate students, but it could be anyone else that wanted to volunteer to supervise. There was a county where they did community screenings for hearing in preschool language And it was very eye-opening for the students who participated in that because, you know, they're gung-ho. They want to get those hearing screening hours and get all that stuff over with. And then they go out there and they're like, wow, these kids are, this is a different world than what I come from. And I think those types of community outreach programs for universities might be helpful as well, because I think some people do that on their own. Some student clinicians do, but then if that was more of a, widespread thing for their their clinics, I think you would probably see a different outcome as well. So if you and I ran the world, how are we going to fix that?
0: Add <laughs> that <laughs> to our next Friday night talk. How about that?
1: <laughs> well, you know what's funny is, again, when I was looking at the research for this, sometimes I read this stuff and I'm like, that doesn't even, I want real like concrete. I need concrete, actionable items, not this general broad, Raising awareness. Okay, well, that's sort of what we're doing right now. But how do you raise awareness in your community? Because you can put that on a piece of paper and it sounds great. But then I want to see what actionable items are you actually doing? Same with expanding healthcare coverage. Okay, well, we've seen how that has turned out in the past few years. It's just been one big, bad roller coaster roll after another. And we have always had health insurance.
0: This is just my personal insight. We've always been blessed to have health insurance. However, Christian's health insurance for a while there when the kids were young, and good God Almighty, every year for six years, either I was giving birth, having surgery to recover from giving birth, or additional surgeries to recover from the other complications of the other surgeries, and then the kids were having surgeries. It took us forever, and I think early 2020 we paid off. No, sometime in 2020. No, it was, my God, it was 2021. We paid off forty-eight thousand dollars in medical bills. Yikes! That was our copay and our deductible from all those surgeries. It took us from ever to quote the bear forty-eight grand in medical bills. Oof! Oof! That's a degree, people. That's a degree just to survive, so that mom didn't bleed out. Right. But like, and there was, there's no financial aid for that.
1: No, there's not. And the, a lot of the things that are considered what they used to call charity care, or they would say indigent care, um, which, oh, ugh, that's, ugh, I don't even like to say that out loud. Yeah. A lot of that has gone away. And then they'll, you know, if the person works, they'll try to get a garnishment on their wages. But, you know, we, we also have a pretty large Catholic based health system here. It's not where I work, but I know that they tend to... Mary Immaculate. Yeah. And it's, well, it's bonds for the health system and they're affiliated with Mercy Health now. And they used to do a lot more charity care than the other two larger non-religious-based health systems did. But, you know, when it says something like improving the number of providers in underserved communities, again, how are you doing that? Because... You can provide a, you know, have a provider sent there, but that's not gonna guarantee they get a job. I know for us, when I was carrying a caseload of 25 by myself, I could have used some help. <laughs> can you hire someone? I mean, it's a whole position. And I know it's different for the physicians, but when we're talking about providers, we're not just talking about physicians. But to create positions within the health system takes forever. You've gotta prove that there's a need, you've gotta figure out the funding for the salary. And all this other red tape nonsense that takes forever. So how are you going to improve the number of providers in underserved communities? Because those underserved communities are typically what? Smaller, less financial income for, or you know, median income, um, less funding for that community. As far as, you know, the community services and things like that. So how is that going to happen? Because again, the addressing has been done as far as these are the things that we need to address, but then how is it being done? The actionable items. Right. And that's the part I'm having a hard time finding. What are we doing? Why is it that community education for things like stroke and brain injury and even PFD in your world, I said PFD to somebody the other day and they were looking, and it was a speech pathologist who serves pediatrics, and they were looking at me like I had four horns coming out of my eyeball. <laughs> I'm like,
0: pediatrics, what? what? You treat this and you don't know what it's called. My favorite is when people are like, yeah, you know, the PDF. And I'm like, the, the attachment to the email. Like, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me clarify your acronyms here. Actually, I do have a good idea for a PDF on PFD. And when I said it like that, Christian, he knows it's a pet peeve. He's like, Are you sure it's not a PFD on a PDF? I was like, Shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, all right. So, rehash for me again the biggest definition difference between health disparities versus health care disparities.
1: So, the health disparities are the actual, the actual things, the actual factors. Um, so, the mortality, the life expectancy, mental health, insurance. Lack of access to care, food insecurity, or we could call it food security if we want to keep it positive, and then also the burden of disease. So it's the things, the stuff, the meat, the meat and potatoes, the details. And then the health care disparities um, is differences in the quality of health care you receive that aren't related to clinical need or access. I don't know that it's really important to know that. I felt like it was when I first started looking at all this, and then I started looking at all the other things about. How these agencies have identified what the disparities are, they've identified it down to race and ethnic health. They, you know, talk about life expectancy for Black men and women is shorter by three to four years, and six or seven years shorter than Hispanic adults. Or infant mortality rates—that's another one that they've identified. Obesity rates and high blood pressure, which brings me back to stroke, because why is the community not educated on the risk factors for stroke because we have those things that are modifiable the things we can change you know you can't change your genetics you can't change your gender you can't change you know what you're born with what your parents and grandparents and what their disease processes were that may be something that you inherit you can't change those things but what you can change is the you know those healthcare things like high blood pressure diabetes um, some of the things that are preventable, but only if you're
0: educated to know how to go and do that, and have the financial means to do it. So,
1: yes, but no, I see the frustration. I yes, because community education is so lacking. It's so lacking. You know, when I first became a speech pathologist, we had stroke support groups, we had aphasia support groups, we had um, a TBI workshop where TBI survivors could come and not only mingle, but maybe work on a job skill or work on a um, coping strategy or something. And it was all volunteer driven. And so I I don't know if it's that those programs aren't supported because they're not generating money for revenue for the hospitals or the other um, health agencies, or if it's lack of volunteers, or if it's both, because if you're not incentivized, what it, you know, I'd like to think that people are driven to do good of their own will, but People have families, people have medical conditions of their own and things, you know, a lot of people are taking care of their parents now, too. So there's a lot of factors that come into play that could be barriers for people that were are qualified to lead those volunteer things. But then if they're not incentivized to do it by the health system being supportive or by the um, community services board or whatever agency is involved by giving, you know, just by giving a space. You know, you can't even really find a space to conduct something like that. And what are you supposed to do? Do it out in the cornfield somewhere? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> what difference does it make at four or five o'clock at night if there's an empty room and twenty-five people go get in there and feel learn about what their condition is and how they can change the next person?
0: Yes. Sorry, I just laugh really hard because I know right where you are, and it's like cornfield. Tobacco field, cotton field, like, yeah, and I'm like, oh, I've been yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So folks, sit back and think about the identifiable point of system failures in your community. And like for for me personally, I am struggling with lack of education and awareness on AAC. Had a colleague at a, not my facility, at a different facility, tell a patient's caregiver that an AAC device for their child on the spectrum that was nonverbal would cause the child to become, never learn their words and become dependent. That's a huge, what would that fall in? Healthcare disparity, lack of knowledge, and then an access to it. There's also misinformation that AAC families are going to have to pay out of pocket when that's not true insurance will cover it. And most states have supports like here in South Carolina, we have um, South Carolina Amplify Life that will, in the event that somebody has a private insurance and their private insurance denies it, which I have seen happen, South Carolina Amplify Life will cover the cost, right? So there's built-in supports there.
1: Right. And well, most of the um, AAC companies also have a person or team that Provides support for those insurance-driven questions and how to navigate those forms and filing and uh, repeal appeal. I said repeals appeals. It's been a week, y'all. <laughs> <I know. laughs> I'm just happy I have words. <laughs>
0: right before we went to record, and we were like, "All right, we've prepared the basics. Everybody has a bra, check. Everybody has poop, check. Middle-aged women problems, but like." Dude, sometimes brush your teeth, refilled a cup of coffee, spilled a cup of coffee. This is why I wear black, so much black. There's always coffee. <laughs> but like these are, we're joking because I mean, when you're talking about a heavy topic, sometimes there's a little joy in there really does help. But like AAC, there are supports for this. Now, another one for me is simply the lack of awareness of a disease or a disorder and I'm sure you have a counterpart in the adults world, but for me, PFD is not a PDF, pediatric feeding disorder. And then trying to explain to physicians that this is truly a new diagnosis when we just got the identifiable codes in October, like we've got to, we desperately need to be reaching out to them at their state association conferences and going to the mountain And sharing it, right?
1: Yeah. And in Virginia, a few years back when I was becoming a speech pathologist, I think I was in graduate school when this really kind of took off, was the fiber optic endoscopic evaluation, you know, fees of swallowing. And we were trying to get regulations because the otolaryngologists and the ENT community really didn't want us scoping patients. They felt like it was taken away from their skill set. And there was a lot of other things that came about, And I know in some states, um, people will do like nasal spray decongestants. They'll do um, like a lidocaine spray. We're not allowed to administer medication here. That is stipulated in our fees regulations. So we can't do any of those things. But then the other part of that is I just had someone say, this has been since the new year. So in 2022, oh, well, in, in Virginia, you have to be in a doctor's office to do fees. And I was like, what? So it's someone who has a private practice without a brick and mortar who says she does mobile fees, but I don't know her well enough to really know. I don't know anyone who's utilized that service here from her. But she was saying that as a, a mobile fees provider, she can't go anywhere and do the fees that we have to be in a doctor's office. And so I was looking back through the regulations and that's not really... True, you have to have a doctor on site. So for you know, us in the health in the hospital, it's a little different thing because doctor obviously ordered it and the doctor's there. So but what my question was to her was, have you tried to partner? We have some pretty large ENT groups here, pediatric and adult, some very, very reputable folks that are affiliated with the medical college here. And so my question to her was, did you try to affiliate with them? Did you go to their office? Did you try to meet up with them and see if they could maybe have you have a little space if you wanted to scope their patients? Because they send those same patients to me for modified barium swallows as an outpatient all the time. So I don't think most of them are very well, I think the doctors are very well versed in what the fees is and what it does. And I don't think they would be opposed to that. So um, the answer I got back was, no, I haven't bothered. Oh, ooh. And I was like, wait a, wait a second. What do you mean bothered? If you're not going to, again, help educate other, just because they're a physician doesn't mean that they're aware of what the services you offer. And if you're not going to advocate for that in such a simple way, the worst thing they're going to say is no, and you're back at the same place you already are. So what difference does it make? The difference makes if they say yes. And then you've got a whole other avenue to educate, you know, them and their staff, but also your patients. And now you have access to the care that may drive the next thing that happens for them. So that's the part I don't. Like I said, I like to think that people are self-determined and want to do those things, but then I think they get in their own way way too much. (laughs) I mean, that's a simple, even if you didn't want to go to their office, send them an email. What are they going to say? They say no, then you're right where you are. Then send it to another person. It's going to eventually. This is where you pick yourselves up by the bootstraps, folks. (laughs) Well, It's it's also in a bigger way. It's how legislation happens. If you don't reach out to your uh, representative or senator, then, okay, well, how are they supposed to know? Yeah, they're getting paid to do a job. But again, you would be. You wouldn't be, but the general public would be surprised at how many times we've had Advocacy Day in Virginia. And we go up to our capital in Richmond and talk to legislators who have no clue what speech language pathologist and audiologist scope of practice is, what wide array of services that we both provide. So, you know, again, looking at disparities, <laughs> lack of education, lack of community education, lack of involvement. So yeah, bootstraps, get the bootstraps.
0: <laughs> so here's a thought. There are, and I'm willing to bet a significant chunk of you listening that are either in private practice, have your own private practice and, or are burned out and toying with the idea of getting your own private practice. And I can hear like the collective head
1: nodding. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Because eventually if you go private practice, you work for someone else long enough that you get frustrated with like how they're running things and then you just do it your own way. I mean, that's what led me to, amen. Like, yes. Right. But like, that's what led me to open my own private practice years ago. And then on the flip side where I am in my walk, I don't have the bandwidth to chase the dreams that I want right now. To actually do all the behind-the-scenes work to have a private practice. Also, I have found the perfect private practice that is like 75% OTs and like 25% speech pathologists. I've never seen a clinic like this. And like I have never had my professional cup filled like I am at this time, which is like – That's amazing. Right? It's just – dear God, it is it is blessed and I know that. Y'all, there was all they hiring? Are they hiring? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's in Hartsville, South Carolina. It's quite delightful. It's like, it literally looks like Mayberry. And I found this place called Ruth's Driven, and they make a mean grilled tomato cheese sandwich with the appropriate ratio of mayonnaise and salt and pepper. Y'all, if you don't put a sliced tomato, mayo, salt, and pepper on your grilled cheese sandwich, I have failed you. I apologize. <laughs> But like that in and of itself is worth going all the way to like that sleepy little town. But like, it's just, but there we are. But I say all of this because when you go into private practice, you eventually have to generate your own referral source ethically, right? How many times do you get a script that says eval and treat this, or you get like piecemeal medical records or zero medical records? That's a disparity. If you get a script that's incomplete, that doesn't meet the patient's needs, that does the patient a disadvantage. But if you see that you're only getting limited or, and I will put this out there because I work in the South, I'm getting biased reports back from the physician. If I have a white male that's two and I'm getting full medical records from one practice, but I have a black male that's four and I'm getting scant to nothing. I go deep, dark, scary places, but I can't go in guns a blazing and say this is bias because that will shut the practitioner down at me, right? I can just say, "Hey, I'm noticing that I'm not getting the full records for this child. Can you please send the rest of the records over because I have to do my PMH for the eval, or I'm missing something and I feel like something has changed in the last ninety-day plan of care. Can you please like send me an update, right? So, and in that moment, you can send back your 90 day plan of care, send back your evals with detailed information and maybe scan in a copy. Cause I know we're still mid COVID. You can scan in a copy of like a cool article or like a tool or a resource, or I don't know the like PFD screener from feeding matters or like the communication bill of rights from ASHA and like, just slide that right on in there to your report. And then they're going to see that. And, If you're not comfortable in your, because there are introverted SLPs, if you're not comfortable in public speaking, that's still a polite way to build a bridge, to educate and to inform. And I mean, these are actionable items that we can work to address bias, neglect, and disparities. Okay, wait, give me some more actionable items.
1: Again, looking at uh, policies, health and health care, um, this was way back in 2000, the National Class Standards, so culturally and linguistically appropriate services in health and health care. You know, I've never heard of that before. I started doing the research for this. And so I was like, okay, well, you have this thing. But again, it says class-related activities, class training legislation. So all this health policy stuff is great in theory because it's Again, it identifies and it, it tells you what the problem is. It gives you the statistics that I think are still appropriate because we need to have that in our face. But one of the things I found that I thought was actually helpful was the American Academy of Family Physicians organization has a whole book and it's free online. It's like 25 ish pages, I think. And it's got, it's about training for implicit bias. So the talk about. Wait, what is that again? Say that again. American Academy of Family Physicians, and it's an implicit bias training guide. So it's it's cool because they have activities in there. So that it's like self-evaluation kind of things that gives you the, the knowledge of, kind of walks you through uh, the physician's medical training and the lacks of the gaps, the lack of um, things that they need to know that are, you know, you need to know anatomy and you need to know how to treat a medical condition, but that's great. But it's sort of like when we go through getting our, our C's and our CF year, we've done all these clinical hours in these different settings. And we like to think we've done all this academic work that really prepares us. And a lot of the things we truly need to know, we don't know until we do the OJT, the on-the-job training.
0: <laughs> OJT, on-the-job training. Love it. Okay.
1: Well, that's why when we have, you know, like you and I have met people and um, Hillary from dysphagia outreach, she takes her students with her into the um, facilities where she does mobile fees and they get to see the nitty gritty and the and the dirty stuff, you know, the, the down and dirty, the things that we actually really need to know. And um, because some of this too is when you're looking at less seasoned clinicians, even when I came into this profession, I was older because this is my second career But I wasn't prepared for some of the things that I've seen. And I don't think you can be necessarily. But again, if you're looking at internally and and figuring out what your own, that implicit bias is, if you don't evaluate that in yourself, you're not going to be able to help anyone else figure out how to make that better, if that makes sense. So I like this guide because it talks about um, actual strategies they talk about empathy, goals for fairness and equality. One of the things that really is one of those things that's like nails on a chalkboard for me, and I've had this happen at both health systems I work for, is when they'll, um, someone will come that's a higher-level manager or mid-level manager. We have a VIP patient coming. Oh, that drives me crazy. And so my response now is as an, as an old person because <laughs> I'll be 50 in a couple months, y'all. I'm getting old. There's something empowering about age in some regards, I think, especially for women. I don't know when this happens or when the switch flips. Late 30s. Late 30s. It starts. My automatic response now is every one of my patients is a VIP. Don't come at me with that. Well, I usually say shit, but crap. Yeah. (laughs) It just irritates me. Like, Who are you to tell? I don't care that you're brother-in-laws, cousins, uncle is the VP of whatever marketing. That has no bearing on the care that I'm going to give that patient. So why do I need to know? I don't need to know that. I need to know what it is I can do to help this patient. So To me, that's a bias it's, and it's not implicit. That's just a straight up bias and it irritates me so much. Like, oh, it's just, ooh, why do you do that? But yeah, so this, you know, when they're talking about the goals is not only to promote awareness of it, in healthcare, but how you moderate the negative effects. So that's why I like it because they do say self-awareness, being conscious to mitigate what it is you do with that. So now this gives you an activity so that you can understand and identify your own bias. But then what do you do with that information? You know, and I think now one of the bigger things, this was a really cool, I thought a really cool way of handling something that happened. This wasn't me, it was someone um, that I work with, well, I used to work with her, but we still um, kind of talk back and forth about tougher cases, you know, of course, with maintaining our confidentiality, but just the the cases in general. So this was someone who is, um, like, she deals a lot in outpatient with head and neck cancer survivors, um, patients who are about to have treatment for that. And after, um, she does a lot of things with neurological disease, like, Parkinson's and Huntington's and um, just she's been a clinician for a long time. So it's nice to bounce ideas back and forth. But she had a transgender male come in and he wanted voice feminization. And she said, you know, I feel like I'm not the one to help him. I, I know voice from a Parkinson's standpoint and a progressive neurological disease standpoint, but I don't feel like I'm qualified. And I thought that was pretty, you know, that's pretty brave because she could have said if she was a less seasoned clinician or maybe even a different personality, she could have said, oh, the pressure is on for my boss to um, develop this into maybe we'll have more referrals. But she said and put her foot down, I don't feel like I'm going to do this patient any good. And let's try to figure out where this patient can go, where it's going to be beneficial and they'll get the care that they deserve and the care that they need. And I thought that was really brave because I think more of us need to do that instead of trying to feel like you're the superhero who can fix anything because there's some things you don't if it's not your your forte, yeah, send them to someone else who can help. We just happen to have someone who is a, a voice sort of specialist, not that we have that as a specialty that's board recognized, but very well versed in it, has a busy pitch, has all the, you know, measurements and tools and things she needs to give good feedback. So that's where he's going to go. He or she, I don't know that person's pronoun. So this transgender male is going to go to this other person who um, does feel like she's well-versed and has had experience with that. So I thought that was, it's a good way of saying we can't fix it all. So if you don't, if you don't know how to do it, there's nothing wrong with learning, but don't do it to the point where it's a uh, science experiment (laughs) that you don't, you don't know what the outcome's going to (laughs) be.
0: Yes. So they did not engage in patient abandonment. They did not do patient harm and they transferred the case to the appropriate clinician. Right. I mean, trans- yes. I mean, that's the cut and dry meat of it. But yes.
1: But in all actuality, she could have said, well, I don't agree with this person's lifestyle or they made me feel uncomfortable. Okay. Well, he made you feel uncomfortable. How do you think he feels? Or he or she, again, don't know the person's pronouns, but you know, that's on the patient's behalf. That is a, heck of an undertaking. So the fact that, you know, the patient's willing to come in and share and and get the care that they deserve and need, then yeah, you have a responsibility to not shove your bias off, whether you know you have that bias or not, because the outcome could have been completely different.
0: Okay. There's two that I want to pop in on real quick. Is it okay? Absolutely. Y'all, ASHA is doing steps... And I know that we all agree that there have been some shortcomings, but there's steps, right? And as I say that, my next breath is don't forget that you are Asha. And in one breath, if you're going to criticize and critique in your next breath, hypothesize and or work towards the solution, we can all sit in that uncomfortable zone. But coming from two state association presidents who have both been involved at CSAP conferences, we can tell you there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. But you have to join your state association and your state leadership, and you have to volunteer in order to be that source of change. But I digress. But there on Ash's website, there's a whole page dedicated to addressing systemic racism and institutional inequities in CSD. And this does partake into healthcare disparities. But what I appreciate about this is that on this page, it actually goes through and they have ASHA driven resources for bias training. And I know that there's some of us out there that are like, oh my God, it's the end of my time and I need my CEUs and where am I going to get my CEUs and da, 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 da. Well, they have CEU courses available on this and I'm going to put it out there. Honestly, I think that we should have bias training as part of our 30 every three. Like I think an ethics class, I think a supervision class, and I think a bias training should be required in our 30 every three. But that's just because I don't know what I don't know. And good God almighty, how am I going to learn it if it's not a here's an opportunity kind of thing,
1: you know? Here's an opportunity. So Harvard University started a something called Project Implicit. And it's a long-term research. Oh, I haven't heard of this. Yeah, it's a long-term research project. And so what they have is a lot of free publicly available computer-based exercises. So again, when we're talking about clinicians, we're talking about people who have access to the internet and access to computer system. So it's not like we're talking about this isn't necessarily community driven education. This is for providers.
0: All healthcare providers, not just us.
1: Right. So they have an implicit association test that you can take. What it does is looks at your automatic associations that you have of the concepts on that quiz. So they look at time and latency of the responses as well. That's part of the measure, but it identifies they have a like a whole bunch of them. So like one about weight. We have a bariatric um, surgery center now at our hospital that's recently opened and we all had to go through the bariatric sensitivity training. And for me, I was like, okay, this is really, it seemed kind of, when I thought about it, I was like, this is dumb. Like, stop. But then when I was doing the training, I was like, would someone really say that? Like, oh, you weigh 600 pounds. I can't help you. And I was just like, would you really say that? I wouldn't. But I'm sure, again, there are people. This is a big wide world of sports here, folks. And there are people who probably would would do that. But I'm pretty sure my ex-husband would fall in that category. <laughs> I mean, that would have been one of the more polite things the man said. But one of the things that I think is a little bit unique about this is they don't say color. They say skin tone. And I thought, huh, okay. So I kind of want to go on and take these just so that I can be more familiar with it because I just learned about this too in the last couple of days. And it's, I haven't really been able to get on there and do that because I was doing some other things, but disability is on there, genders and careers and gender in science. And then also weapons. That would be an interesting one. That's a trigger point in our household. Someone has asked me to look at some of the ways that our, adult world, things have changed as far as standardized testing. And and the one that pops into my mind immediately was the Western aphasia battery and how the little box of objects used to have a gun and a cigarette and
0: (laughs) matches. Wait, is it the BASA, the Boston aphasia? The
1: BDAE, Boston Diagnostic Aphasia? No, there was one, I
0: think it was the BASA, somebody out there screaming this, that they had Oh, the Boston Naming Test has the news. It was something, it was created in the 80s. I found it in our um, clinic at the FMU clinic. And I mean, we all inherited it, right? Like we didn't order these assessments originally. And when I was going through the assessment, it had, and again, it was normed in the 80s. I'm from the 80s, closing in on 40 years here. It gave points if they were able to name the Nazi symbols, and if they couldn't name them, if they gave hand gestures associated with it. And I yanked that son of a gun off the shelf, marched my us right up the stairs, and was like, This is not okay in our clinic.
1: Oh, wow. I don't even know that I know that. <laughs> I think it
0: was somebody out there like screaming it, but it was an aphasia test from like the 80s that like it religionally made in the 80s, but it was just. I don't remember why. I was going through all of the tests looking for something. And so we yanked it. It's not in the university clinic anymore. But even in your testing materials, what are the bias? Like how I'm slamming my hands down on like the table because this this gets me rolling. What are the biases in the test? Also just the freaking tests themselves that we pull off the shelves. Like the PLS-5 was normed for children that had typical language, mild and severe, when they normed it, they didn't norm it on a child with a moderate language delay. So it elevated all the standardized scores up one standard deviation, not to mention that it was normed on a predominantly upper to middle-class white male population. So what about our children from the Southwest from lower incomes? What about the children that come from reservations that don't have this exposure or don't have this semantic word knowledge? They don't see any chance on these freaking tests.
1: So y'all this. Oh, yeah. Appalachia, the same thing. Yeah. Yes,
0: exactly. Which is why when we go to, God, this gets me angry. This is why when we go to do a assessment, you're not just when you're really giving a child a diagnosis, remember the pathologist part. When you're saying a child has a speech-language impairment, a speech-language disorder, you need to do this more than just one standardized assessment. You have to get a language sample. You have to, like, deep dive, walk with the family, walk with the physicians, walk with the caregivers. Give me the full PMH. Rar. Okay, wow. Maybe I shouldn't have that second cup of coffee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> When we're, again, you know, we're able to, I think, identify some stuff, but then now we have this tool that we can use that, you know, may point out some things you didn't know about or weren't aware about of yourself and that how you can kind of look at that and, oh, crap, you know, I need to maybe think about that in a different way and, and look at some other research and things like that. But there's another one that's called the Safe Zone Project, and this is identity signs that you can used to have people identify their own social identity and, you know, it's things like gender expression, identity, sexual orientation, biological sex, national origin, immigration status. And so the safe zone, you can put these up for training. The purpose is to have a safe and inclusive learning environment. And there, again, some of this, um this one guide has all this information in there, about the website. It's it's on the American Academy of Family org. Implicit Bias. They have a whole training, not just this um, facilitator guide, but they have this whole training with PowerPoint presentations that talk about a safe and inclusive learning environment and the safe zone project and how you can use that to get in that uncomfortable place so that then you can learn how to get out of that by having that content knowledge and looking at other people's backgrounds, identities, and and their experiences and learning from that. So those to me are actionable items. Those are things that you can do and and you can be self-motivated to do that. And again, I think that would be a great one for a university clinic to have um, a safe zone project like that within their clinicians, their student clinicians, and have them do that together because they can. One thing I always tell my students, and I probably have said this to you many times, You may not like everyone that you work with, but especially when you go to, like in my area, we have two large universities that are schools with CSD programs. And so at some point, you are probably going to work with, interview with, interview, or have knowledge of another clinician that you may not like personally, but you don't want to burn that bridge because you never know where you're going to be sitting across the table from someone that could be a stakeholder you could be the stakeholder. So, you know, keeping those professional relationships intact, while that may not be your go-to person for handling a tough case, you still need to maintain a professional connection there because you never know where you're going to wind up and who's going to be sitting across the table from you. So they could even be your patient one day.
0: We had an incident at the university January a year ago, year and a couple months ago. And The resolution was that one of the faculty members who I highly admire worked both cohorts through the implicit bias webinars that are on ASHA's website. They're like three to five minute videos. And it was, it was uncomfortable. Everybody in the room was uncomfortable because, I mean, let's face it. Have you ever learned a life lesson in a comfortable setting? (laughs) Right. Okay. My dad has a story about the hay bale talk. I coined the phrase. You're very much welcome. So I mouthed off to my dad one time and um, it was when they were, Oh God. One time I was an angry 13 year old female (laughs) and my parents had divorced and I wanted what I wanted for when I turned 13, I I don't even remember what it was, but I had gone through this season of like total anger. Like my parents had split. I found out my mom having an affair, like all this drama, right? And so, no, I was 13 or 14, old enough to know better and mouthed off to my dad really ugly and then hung up on him. And my dad had, oof, oof. Navy DOD worked in the intelligence department, (laughs) probably the wrong man to mouth off to and hang up on. And he had moved away from the family farm and lived about 45 minutes away. Well, about 30 minutes later, my dad showed up and said, we're going over the hill. Now, in my family, when something goes over the hill, it's getting put down. Like that was like,
1: <laughs> so there's teenage Michelle. Yeah, that's also called going to the farm. We've heard that one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so d- dad took my butt over the hill, sat me down. We went in the barn and I was like, I'm going to die. I'm actually going to die. I mean, please know, my dad never raised a hand to me. But he grabbed a hay bale from the top, sat it down and sit your little butt right there on that hay bale. And you will listen with an open mind and with an open heart. A second part got. And in that moment, I realized one, the gravity, the error of my ways, but two, also that it wasn't just me going through a season of anger and hurt. It's like literally my entire family. But tell that to a 13 or 14 year old girl, right? Like it's you're self-centered versus world-centered at that stage in your development. And it was at that moment of total uncomfortableness. Is that, I think that's a word that we're calling that a word in this moment. It is now. Yes, it is now. (laughs) But like, holy crap, my world grew. I grew. It's okay to be uncomfortable when you're learning. That's okay. Embrace the uncomfortable. Sit in the uncomfortable is what Dr. Burns would, you know, I love when she says that. Remember, it's okay to be uncomfortable, but we're learning. And then you wake up and you do better the next day.
1: Yeah. And some of that is also social conditioning. You know, like you said, most of us are middle or upper middle classes, clinicians and professionals. And that social conditioning that we, you're not really an active participant. And it's just how you live. It's your life. But you have to understand that other people's social conditioning is not the same thing. And, you know, we've got that little part of our brain, the amygdala, the fight or flight that comes into play because, you know, when you're uncomfortable, what do you want to do? And this is one of those things I learned. I learned from yoga, which sounds like counterintuitive. But when you do a Zen yoga where you're doing a lot of holding poses and a lot of stretching uncomfortable places, like the top of your feet or the bottom of your feet, it gets uncomfortable. What do you want to do? You want to stop. And I know that sounds really kind of silly, but it's just an example of do that. Put your weight on, like sit like on your knees, like kneeling, put your butt down on your heels and kind of press up on your feet and the tops of your feet get so (laughs) freaking uncomfortable because we don't stretch that part of our body. So it's sort of the same thing, the fight or flight, because now when you've identified these biases you become uncomfortable because you're like oh crap did i do that did i actively do that or was this socially conditioned and you it's understanding that and identifying that so that you can move forward and part of that is not just you know now i think we've we've done a really good job of saying okay the awareness is there for governmental and community agencies the awareness is becoming more prevalent for us as healthcare providers and clinicians how do we mitigate that which is kind of what we were talking about today And then, you know, kind of checking in with yourself, get in that uncomfortable place, see what you can educate yourself on to change if that's a change you need to make, or if it's something that you can even maybe say to someone else that you feel comfortable with. Because sometimes talking it out with somebody that you trust and say, you know, I took this sounds so silly, but I took this quiz, (laughs) but it's an area that you can, you know, really expand on.
0: No, we all take the Enneagram quizzes. We all take the personality quizzes. If you have a champagne with Aaron, you will be getting your horoscope read to you. So, like, and, like, we
1: I talked about that at Ash, We did. I told you. I knew it was going to happen. But, like. No, Aaron and I talked about it when you were getting your fancy award. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I still love you. It's okay. I got in
0: trouble for not telling anybody that that happened and I still haven't really told anybody that that happened, but like, cause I don't like to talk about those things. It makes me uncomfortable. Sit in the uncomfortable, Michelle. (laughs) Wait, stop. Okay. Shout out to Myrne. My Myrne. My Myrne is my accountability partner. She's the person that when something happens in society that I go to because I know I have those biases and I am working And this is nothing, something that you ever just like check the box and it's done. You're always growing.
1: Well, and we keep hearing a lot about, like I hear this on the news a lot about mindfulness and meditation. And a lot of people have started doing those types of programs. You know, our Fitbits and our iWatches have that little EDA scan you can do that's supposed to make you more mindful. And for some reason, I freak out when I do it and my heart rate goes up instead of down. (laughs) But I think when you think about that, implicit bias. And just when you've identified that, just having the self-awareness piece, but then also being mindful in a different way. You don't have to necessarily meditate on it, but being mindful when you're about to say something like I did earlier with the transgender male and the pronouns, I, I don't want to say he or she, because I don't know. I don't even know what this particular person, where they're at in their transition. I, I don't know anything about them. So I don't want to be that person that then sounds like a complete total jerk. So to me, that was the practice of being mindful because I don't, I can't comment on it. I don't know. And that wouldn't be right to do so.
0: But you're honest about this. You know what I mean? And that's,
1: God, I love you. It's <laughs> I I also the same thing when you hear, it, you know, like person first language and I hear a doctor say, oh, they're aphasic or they're dysarthric." It drives me nuts. It drives, that's another nail on the chalkboard for me. Oh, gosh, what the one I read the other day. Oh, man, it left me already. That's because we're middle-aged. That's because
0: <laughs> I have to poop
1: before we podcast. <laughs> Did we brush our teeth bras on check? <laughs> I got my little glass of water so I don't get hoarse and sound like I have a voice disorder today. <sighs>
0: oh my. God. Okay, woman, we are over. And Lord Almighty, I knew we would be. Is there anything else you want to leave us with before we roll?
1: For me, I think we covered the things that I wanted to cover. But I think American Academy of Family Physicians dot org. It's aafp dot org. Go look up their implicit bias training. Even if you don't take the quizzes, even if you just read through it, it's a good resource. It's a good resource to have in your back pocket. You never know when you're going to need it. And you can join me next week on pd dot com if you want. Yes. Yes, because we have, hold on one second. I have
0: a picture of it. You can find Renee. She actually has two webinars out. We have ethical considerations for SLPs in medical settings. It's a one-hour CEU with speech therapy PD. And what's the name of the other one that
1: I wanted to sign up for and then brain farted about? Oh, gosh. You want the official title? Just the gist of it. It's ICU, working in the ICU for medical SLPs.
0: Yes, And that's a two-hour class?
1: That was a two-hour, yes.
0: That was a two-hour class, yes. So, and then don't forget, she was also in episode 155. Let me double-check myself. You can check this out. Episode 155, The Ethics of Evolving Your Scope of Practice. Perfect. And there's more to come because Renee has a a passion and a wealth of knowledge to share. So stay tuned. But if you can't remember the names of the titles, if you just go on the website and just search Renee Garrett, they all pop up. Renee, thank you for coming on lady. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Folks go check out first Bite podcast on Instagram. Check out the first Bite Facebook page. As always, we love it. When you hit us up on Apple podcast, I'm remembering the sequence of the words. And give us five stars and a joyful review. And seriously, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open-access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both Asha and Skisha. And for this year for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the Asha 2021 Convention. My financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from SpeechTherapyPD.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye.